week's episode of Motley Full Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. In this week's episode, we're joined by a fool who is going to share the path he took to achieving an impressive 814 credit score. We're also going to answer your question about how much to invest in each sector and play a rousing game of Can I Throw It Away Already? All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Christian on Twitter. His handle is at ChristianMPT. He writes, Any suggestions or resources for what percentages to invest into each industry sector? I feel overweighted in tech. Well, Christian, let me uh, start by parsing out the terms. Actually, sector and industry are different. Sector is sort of the big umbrella term, and most people consider the sectors that have been identified by the Global Industry Classification Standards, a joint project of Morgan Stanley and S&P, and there are 11 sectors. Underneath those sectors is where you get industries and sub-industries. So there's actually 24 industry groups and 157 sub-industries. Wow, okay. So I'm going to assume you're talking sectors, the big 11. You're not unique in probably being overweighted in tech. First of all, if you're a motley fool, reader or listener, you probably already have a lot of tech because we kind of like tech stuff. Yeah. But it actually is also the sector that has the biggest weighting in the S&P 500. 22% of the S&P 500 is in tech. However, just because you have a, uh, many stocks in the same sector doesn't necessarily mean you're overly concentrated. And I'm going to cite an excellent article that came from a guy named Adam McCullough from Morningstar. And what he did is he looked at the top 10 holdings in the major sector ETFs and found that some are more concentrated than others in terms of their correlation. So when you look at, for example, the real estate sector ETF, all top 10 holdings are very correlated because they're all sensitive to interest rates. If interest rates go up or down, they all move. However, when you look at something like consumer discretionary, even though um, all these stocks might be considered consumer stocks, they're very different. For example, the number one holding in consumer discretionary is Amazon. Right. Then Home Depot, then Comcast, then Walt Disney. See, because Amazon, all very... I could also be like, well, that's maybe a tech stock. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So just because you have a lot in tech doesn't necessarily mean that you're overly concentrated. You just have to look at the individual companies and see, are they in similar businesses? Do they often perform similarly? But if you're looking for a general rule of thumb, I would say that once you get up to about 30% in one sector, you might be, um, you might be pushing it you might want to cut back a little bit. And I say that particularly with 2008 in mind, which was the worst year for the stock market since the Great Depression. A lot of people were very focused in financial stocks, particularly people who were retired because they were looking for the dividends that came from those stocks. But that was the industry that got hit the hardest. So probably once you hit 30%, it's time to start thinking about maybe diversifying a little bit more. Thanks to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for sponsoring today's episode. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial information to get a mortgage approval in minutes. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. I'm sitting on top of the world. 
just rolling along, rolling along. I believe it was Aristotle who once said, show me the credit score and I will show you the man. <laughs> or maybe no one said that, but someone could have. Your credit score is a number between 300 and 850, and it's based on your history of debt, managing your credit, and paying bills. It's a very important number. And Nathan Hamilton, an analyst here at The Motley Fool, joins us today to talk about how he was able to achieve a credit score of 814. I think you can do better, though. But we'll, I could. We'll I get could to get that up later. to 850. Yeah, you could. <laughs> So, thank you for joining us, Nathan, Absolutely. Glad and to be sharing here. your story. All right. So, first off, though, talk to us a little bit about why a credit score matters so much. Well, I, I guess simply put, it's the most important number in our financial lives that most of us don't know about. I mean, not being grandiose there, but research shows that 60% of people, Americans, don't know their credit score. So, that's a majority of people out there. I actually, so out of the three of us, do you know your credit score? I do. I, don't. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but it's, it's you know, in, it's it's in it's your it's in, in your neighborhood. Yeah. Okay. okay, I'm sure I'm in your neighborhood too. <laughs> I, I would be surprised I if you're not. Well, you know. exactly. one thing after this episode, let's go, go check, check it. And, All right, and take a look let's. because I mean, if you look at why it's important, is say with a mortgage, a poor credit score versus an excellent credit score, there's a one and a half percentage point difference. That's Sounds like a small number, but if you look at over 30 years with a 30-year mortgage, that's tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars that you could save just by having a better credit score and budgeting well and saving. And All kinds track. of other people who have some sort of influence on your financial life will be looking at it. Insurers, potential employers can be looking at your credit record. Yep. Um, there are studies that show that people with lower credit scores do get into more car accidents, for example. Oh, yeah. Like if I could if I, if I had to know just one thing about someone and make a prediction about what their financial life is going to look like, I'd choose their credit score because it yep. just shows whether they are a responsible person with money. And now you, however, maybe didn't get off to the best start with money. So I did not. So where so but so before we get to how you got to eight fourteen, sure. tell us about where you started. So I guess my story is probably pretty similar to a lot of people. Got my first credit card, wasn't too informed. Of, Did you get it in college because of the free T-shirt? Um, I think it may have been <laughs> frisbee or something like I that. I think I wanted yeah. to buy a new computer, get something that I wanted but didn't need, yeah. essentially. So <clears throat> after opening my first credit card, it was pretty much a few months before I was incurring interest charges, had racked up debt. I think several thousand dollars within that time frame, and just pretty much went on a spending spree. Ooh. And, yeah. It was very nice, but I don't remember what I bought or anything Aww. about it. But I do remember the feeling I had of being in debt at that point. And I made a decision to never take on credit card debt again, just because of the high interest charges, to never pay those interest charges. So to get out of debt, what I did is essentially opened up a balance transfer credit card. And for people that may not be familiar with it, it's just essentially taking your balance from one card, moving it to another card where there's a 0% introductory APR for a certain number of months, 12, 15, 18, 21, 21 months. And I did that twice. So I opened one card, didn't incur interest, kept on paying the balances down on time, wasn't able to pay it off during the, the promo period, opened another balance transfer card, closed down the old one, and kept on doing that until the debt balances were paid down. The idea of opening up new credit... It's. I mean, I've been. We've been doing this show long enough for me to know that it's actually not bad. But it still no. sounds. It sounds bad. Like open. I'd be saying like, oh, I opened up a credit card to pay off my other credit card. Yeah. Sounds like. A, it sounds like a bad idea. 
but, but it's, it's not. not. <laughs> no, because if you look at my credit score specifically, I've held over my entire life as a borrower a credit history, I've had, I think it's 19 credit cards. Wow. And some of them I will sign up for bonuses, and I'll use the card infrequently. Some are just ones that I use as my standby go-to. I normally carry just one to two cards in my wallet to keep it simple. But over time, I have used credit cards for various different purposes. And your credit score, there will be a slight ding when you apply for new credit, five to 10 points, depending upon the scenario. But if you look over the long term, if you're opening another account, establishing a payment history of paying on time, if you're managing your debt well, that's more data that credit score models can use to assess your risk as a, um, as a borrower. And talk a little bit about credit utilization and how that impacts your FICO score. Yep. So, as part of paying down the balance transfers, um, credit utilization is looking at how much debt you borrow versus what you have available on your, your revolving credit limits. And with your FICO score, you want to bring that number down. So, by paying off debt quicker, you're impacting 30% of your FICO score by doing so. So, that's one thing when you look at the balance transfer cards. Why does it make sense to do that? Okay, you're establishing a payment history, which accounts for 35% of your score. You're bringing down your credit utilization ratio, which impacts 30% of your score. Those are the two single biggest factors driving your FICO score and where many people should focus for improving it. So, should I also call up my credit card and try to always max out my credit limit, or does that backfire? In certain scenarios. Oh, okay. So, if you're prone to spending that credit limit increase, absolutely (laughs) don't do it. I'm not prone. I'm not prone to spending too much. Absolutely. If you manage your finances well and you want to improve your credit utilization ratio, absolutely dial up your credit card company, go online. It's simple to request a credit card limit increase. And I don't see any reason to not do so if you're good at managing your finances and not taking on that additional debt. One thing you mentioned is that really the most important thing is just paying your bills on time. It is. It's simple. Yeah. And how have you managed to do that to make sure you, you have an actual system that you follow? Yeah, and I've started this one in the last year or two because if you look at credit cards, they're super convenient. It's easy to get into debt. They say on average that people spend about 18% more with a credit card versus, say, a debit card. So I look at it in my brain. I have to say, okay, how do I budget better? So what I've done is I've broken down my budget into 10-day increments, so the 10th of the month, the 20th of the month, and the end of the month. And I've set up an allotted amount that I spend within that time frame, pay the balance off, go to the next 10 days, pay the balance off, and just set payment alerts, or sorry, set alerts on your account when your balance goes above a certain threshold, you're notified and says, okay, you're not meeting your budgeting goals. Gotcha. So, you have some recommendations that you want to leave our listeners with if they want to improve their credit score. What's the first piece of advice you have? So, the first one, if you are in debt, just like I did when I was 21, spending whatever amount of money on whatever purchase, I still can't recall, (laughs) is um, just pay down that debt quick because bringing your utilization ratio, like I said, is going to impact 30% of your score. The second thing you can do is just never miss a payment, and that comes down to budgeting and spending within your means. And then, as far as specific credit cards, um, what do you suggest? So, in the case where you do have debt, balance transfer credit cards are going to make sense. And there are so many on the market. There are over, if you look at it, there's over 1,700 credit cards in the US. Wow. And, you know, for people looking for balance transfer cards, they definitely need to narrow down the um, the options out there. And if you go to fool.com slash credit cards, we do have our picks of the best balance transfer credit cards. Um, If you don't have debt, maybe it makes sense to look at, earning rewards because you're paying your balance off monthly, you're not incurring interest charges, 
you might as well earn, say, one and a half, two percent cash back or travel rewards for those everyday necessity type purchases. Okay, so in addition to obviously paying your bills on time, credit utilization, uh, what else should people keep an eye on when it comes to keeping a, a credit score looking all high and awesome? Getting it above 800, yeah. Yeah, getting yeah. above 800. So, um, as we mentioned before, credit inquiries are going to have an impact, but they do roll off after 12 months. So, they roll off of your FICO score. They are reported on your credit report. But so that's if like a if you open up new credit or if yeah, you get open a, a new account if you go apply or, for okay. a mortgage. Um, there are certain instances like applying for a new um, oh, cell like phone, rent, or yeah, yeah rent, or anything like that, where there is a hard inquiry. You want to keep track of that. But as I mentioned, they roll off after twelve months. Okay. The other part of it is having a good mix of credit accounts. So be it a student loan, be it a mortgage, credit cards, whatever type of money you can borrow, the FICO scoring models will take a look at and say, okay, do you have a good mix of accounts? Can we then assess it and say, okay, you're a good borrower. We're going to give you a higher score. Is there anything wrong with opening all these said credit card accounts and then just leaving them dormant and just snipping them? So, if you're incurring an annual fee for not using the Uh card, it makes sense to close it down. Um, But if they are no annual fee credit cards. There's no harm in keeping them open. What it does is establish your it establishes your average account age, which to get the best score out there, you really want to have an average account age of five years. Mm. And keeping your cards open in those scenarios will, will definitely make sense. Another thing we often tell people about is if they want to improve their credit score, is to also go check in on their credit reports and make sure that there's nothing inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, if you go to, I believe it's it's freecreditreport.com or my annual free credit report, um, you can look on Google and there are websites where you can get your free credit report. Now, an important thing to remember is that's your credit report. It's not your actual credit score. Right. It's what your score yep. is based on. Yep. So that information in your credit report is what FICO crunches. The, it's the data FICO crunches to give you your credit score. It's actually annualcreditreport.com. And more and more services I found are actually offering your credit score for free sure. these days. Oh, yeah. Like, credit Karma. Right. Yeah. And bank rate. Um, that said, some of those are actually not the actual FICO. It's oh. basically their. Educated guess, Their guess at yeah. what your credit score actually is. Yeah. It's directionally right. When you look at those, say, free credit scores, all of those offers you see out there, it's not a FICO score. But you can get a free FICO score. And what I recommend is some credit cards offer it, some banks offer it. And there may be a good chance that if you are with some of the major banks out there, check with them and see you may already have access to a free FICO score through your existing relationships. Cool. All right. Well, Nathan, thank you for joining us today. And if you, our listeners, want to learn more about raising your credit score or to see what credit cards The Motley Fool believes are the best for people with excellent credit, because you listen to the show, so I'm sure you have. (laughs) You've got it all going on. You got it. Head to fool.com slash credit cards to learn more. Oh, I love trash. Anything dirty or dingy or dusty. It's that beautiful week in Washington, D.C. between winter and summer. You might know it as spring. We know it as the brief period where you have neither the A.C. nor the heat running. It's literally like seven days in this town. That's about it. (laughs) So, we're all embracing spring, throwing open the windows, and hopefully tossing things out. Maybe not necessarily out the windows, but whatever. So, Bro and I are going to play a rousing game of Can I Throw It Away Already? (laughs) To help you with your spring cleaning. All right, first one. Old tax returns. 
So here's the guidance from the IRS, and I think it's actually quite funny. First of all, keep stuff for three years unless situations four, five, or six apply to you. What's situation four? Keep it for six years if you report if you underreported your income and it's more than twenty five percent of what you should have. <laughs> uh, keep it forever. If you've committed fraud, so if you decide <laughs> yeah, to right. commit fraud, just keep those records around. Uh, but generally speaking, I would say three years is what the IRS tells you because that's the amount of years they have to audit you. But I think seven years is a better guideline, just as a, as a good rule of thumb. All right, bills, 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 bills. I've got my phone bill. I've got my I don't know. I've got all these bills. I would say it's just the average utility type yep. of bill. Keep it for a year, and that's about as long as you need it. Photos of me that aren't flattering. This There's, is going to be from the 90s. These don't exist. That's very sweet. Yes, yeah, they do exist. <laughs> for now, anyway. All right. Receipts from household purchased items. Is this, Are you talking about blend, like blenders? And no, I'm talking about sort of like... Uh, refrigerators? Anything Bigger. that if your house were to burn down, oh. you would want proof that you owned it. So... Uh, Big appliances, refrigerators, also anything that would be under warranty, mm. so that you want to have proof. That said, if your house burns down, you're going to lose some of those receipts. So some of the important yeah, stuff, either, that's going to go right. You, you, I actually recommend you take pictures of a lot of that stuff, so you have digital copies. And the really important stuff, keep in some sort of fireproof safe, which is what we have in our house. Pay stubs. Pay stubs generally for a year. That last pay stub is the most important because that tells you everything you need to know in terms of how much you got paid, how much in taxes you paid, but also how much you contributed to retirement accounts. You may remember, you may remember in a previous episode, a fellow was contributing to both his traditional 401k and his Roth 401k, but this 401k provider didn't separate the two contributions. We suggest that he go back to his pay stub. So if you're doing anything funky with your retirement accounts, actually anything related to retirement accounts, it's actually better to keep some information, at least on an annual basis, forever. Your childhood diary. If you were younger, if you hadn't gone through puberty yet, it's adorable. If you've gone through puberty, it's embarrassing. It's so bad. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> my, my 25-year-old daughter has posted some stuff she wrote when she was like 12 on Facebook, and it's really cute. Yeah. But I could just imagine. And I, I mean, I found my diary once in, in high school, and it was just... Embarrassing. It's just all feelings, right? Isn't it? <laughs> it's all feelings. <laughs> just don't keep one. Don't ever keep one. It's not worth it. <laughs> it's like if my kids ever found it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I found mine the other day and I was like, oh, I'll just pull a random date and read it. I literally wanted to go back in time and punch myself in the face. <laughs> like it was so bad. It was just bad. I think we have a new fun segment on our hands. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just bring our diaries in. Today's entry Duran Duran has a new song out. <laughs> He's dreamy. <laughs> All right. Uh, pile of paperwork you signed when you bought your house. Uh, well, you want to keep it for as long as you own the house um, because it'll have information about what you paid and stuff like that. So that'll, that'll be information you need when you sell it to, to calculate any kind of gain if you owe any taxes on it. Generally, most people don't, but you want to keep that around. Once you've moved to the house into another house, keep that information for about seven years, then get rid of it. Account statements like the ones from my broker and 401k and all that stuff. Anything that establishes the cost basis of anything you've bought mm. that you eventually will sell and have to report on your tax return, keep it. Now, if it's in your your IRAs, generally speaking, you don't have to worry about it unless you're making non-deductible contributions to a traditional IRA. Keep that information. But anything for a taxable brokerage account, keep that information because at some point you're going to sell those investments and you're going to need some way to calculate your cost basis. Receipts for home improvements. 
keep those because those also will factor into the cost basis of the house when you eventually sell it. You actually would consider that? Like you would look in that and think about it? Yeah, because yeah. for most people, you have a home sale exclusion of 250000 per person, 500000 per couple. That means you can gain that much in your house and not worry about taxes. Mm. But who knows about future tax law and living in Washington, D.C., if you've owned your house for a long time? It's possible. So all that stuff, stuff would be factored into the cost basis to calculate your gain. Also, you. it's also for any appraisal. So, like, if you're going to get a home equity loan or, or a reverse mortgage, anything where they're going to appraise your house, you want to say, like, oh, actually, my house is worth this much more than you think it is because we improved the kitchen or we did this or that. Yeah. So, home improvements over what amount of money? Uh, I, I would thousand, say, yeah. a couple thousand. I, yeah. I mean, for me, we just have this big file of anything <laughs> we've done to the house. So. It pretty much just gets thrown in there. But yeah, I mean, if you painted the mailbox, it's probably not necessary. <laughs> All right. Well, Casa Southwick is going to get a whole lot cleaner here. Thank you very much. I'm going to go throw some stuff away and maybe even my diary. I have a question. Yes. Is there any reason any of this cannot be electronically stored instead of paper stored? Can I just take a picture of everything or sure. some of it have to be for legal reasons actually in paper? Not that I know of. I mean, even with the IRS now, they're strongly encouraging people to do everything digitally. So, no, I think it's possible as long as you have two places to store that information. So, you have even, it on your computer and then maybe a backup drive. Even tax returns, stuff like that? I think, I think it's fine. I mean, I've been filing my taxes electronically now for years, and I, I have printed them out just because I'm that type of guy, but the IRS does not say anything about yeah. making sure you have a print copy. I've always printed them out because I thought I was supposed to be that kind of guy, but I'm not, and I'd be happy to not print them out if that's We're giving legal. you permission to not be that guy. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's the show. Our email is answers at fool.com. You can connect with us via Twitter. We're at Answers Podcast. Also, if you're on Facebook, come join our private Facebook group. It's a friendly space where you can chat with Motley Fool analysts and hosts about stocks, money, etc. Thanks to Bill, who sent the promised postcard from the promised land of Jordan. It finally arrived! Yay! Also, thanks to Robert Brokamp, who bought me 10 boxes of Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies. You're worth every one of them. <laughs> the show is edited spring cleanly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.